Hello, and welcome to the Canine Conversations podcast, where we are positively obsessed with dog behavior. Join certified dog trainers as we discuss case studies, explore training concepts, and interview experts in the field of dog behavior. My name is Kayla Fratt, and I'm the owner of Journey Dog Training, which is an online dog training business. And I'm joined today by Sarah Dixon, who's the president of the board of the International Association of Animal Behavior Consultants. Sarah also works for Instinct Dog Behavior in New York City. And today we're going to be talking about drive in dogs. So hi, Sarah. Um, Welcome to the podcast. Before we get started, can we um, go ahead and just have you introduce yourself and tell them a bit about you, where where to find you, all the good stuff. Sure. So I will uh, just add a small disclaimer that I do live in New York City, and I apologize if there is, you know, excessive road noise. Um, Sometimes we get sirens and crazy people, so (laughs) I apologize in advance. It is obviously out of my control. Um, So yes, I am a certified dog behavior consultant through the IABC, and I have been on the board for uh, four or five years now, and I have just started as the president of the board, um, um, almost finished my finished uh, a year term in that. And I work in New York City, uh, in Manhattan, and I work with all kinds of behavior problems. So I do specialize in behavior issues only, um, and I work all in-home with clients. So I do a lot of separation anxiety. I do a lot of dogs that are aggressive or fearful of strangers coming into the house. Uh, I do a lot of um, dogs that are fearful outside. Um, and a wide variety of all kinds of other things, resource guarding, dog reactivity, dog aggression. It's a pretty fun and challenging um, place to work. Uh, so if people are interested in finding out more about where they can find me, I do work for a company in New York City called Instinct Dog Behavior and Training. I also have my own website, which is nycdogtrainer.us, and I am on Instagram at nycdogtrainer. Awesome. Yeah, um, I know I've listened. I think you did Animal Training Academy podcast just talking about the challenges of being like a mega urban dog trainer. It was super interesting because, yeah, I mean, I've worked in Denver, but uh, which is a a decent sized city, but there's still a lot more space than New York City. It's a whole different beast. It's crazy. I should also mention, too, because I always forget this, that I have a podcast Mm -hmm. of my own. Yes. Um, (laughs) And so it's called Hair of the Dog. And our little shtick is that we do like a craft beer or a cocktail or a glass of wine or something like that. And we talk about, you know, life and dog training. Um, and it's very candid conversational style and we get guests on as well. So if you're, if you're looking for a different dog training podcast, recommend you check it out. Yeah. Yeah. I will second that recommendation. It's a lot of fun to listen to and it's a, uh, I find it refreshing in its candor. <laughs> um, Cool. So as I said on the onset, Sarah and I are going to be talking about drive today. And um, part of the reason I wanted to do this is when I was a newbie trainer, which wasn't all that long ago, I think drive was one of those things that I'd hear about a lot. Um, people would say something about drive and then add a caveat, but then go on to talk about drive anyway. And I never really feel like I heard anyone talking about drive in dogs as its own topic. Um, so I think we're going to start out by breaking down what people mean when they say drive. Um, so we can start defining our terms and we're going to do that because I think one of the biggest issues when people talk about drive as a term is that it means different things to different people. Um, it's kind of just a word. It's just a label. We slap it onto something. We pretend we all agree about it, but we probably don't. 
And I think that there are kind of three different main terminologies around drive. Um, people call dogs high drive as if it's a personality trait or it's a fixed thing about that dog. Then they talk about play drive and prey drive and food drive. And then there's kind of this term of in drive, like it's a gear on a car. Um, and I find it all super confusing. I think it, we would be really hard pressed to get three dog, three different dog trainers to agree on what it all means, but let's give it a go. <laughs> um, so let's start with the first one. What comes to mind when I say high drive dog? Well, for me, I think that uh, I mean, like, I do have a pretty good background in dog sports as well, so I certainly am no stranger to the term. When I think about a high-drive dog, and when I think about my dog out of my three dogs that I would describe as a high-drive dog, it's a dog that, um, I mean, I tend to associate it with a, a quick and fast arousal level. It's not always necessarily the case, but I do find that they're kind of associated um, of course, there's like an optimal level of arousal <laughs> in yeah. drive. Um, so we can talk about that a little bit more. But I do think that uh, arousal levels and like quick to become aroused and high arousal levels can definitely be associated. And then the other thing that I consider, because you can have a dog that gets aroused quite easily and fast, but wouldn't be considered uh, necessarily a high drive dog, is a dog who is willing to work really hard um, to obtain reinforcement. I would agree. I think that's, I think for me personally, the way I would define a high drive dog is a dog who is really willing to work very hard to obtain that reinforcement. Um, and I know like um, one of the things that we would do at the shelter um, that I used to work for, if we had a dog that we thought was potentially a candidate for a working position, um, one of the tests that a couple of the organizations would have us practice is taking a tennis ball and showing it to the dog and then dropping it into a five gallon bucket across a room from the dog. And basically what they were looking for is the dog would be so interested in it that he would remain focused, come all the way across the room, look into the bucket and go for the ball, which is obviously just testing for a dog who's interested in a ball. But that, to me, is a decent indication, at least for that specific object. Yeah. And, like, my my dog, who I would say out of my three is, like, definitely a really high-drive dog, is my Australian Shepherd. And so he's a working-line Australian Shepherd. And, like, he is particularly, quote-unquote, drivey. Um, and it, he gets aroused very easily and very fast. Uh, but he he kind of needs that because it's his arousal that will get him through a lot of like tricky working situations. So when they're bred to like work cattle, they literally have to take like kicks in the head and keep right. working. Um, so there's that desire to do the job and to earn that reinforcement. And then there's, I think for him, like that arousal level actually plays a part in that because you get that huge kind of adrenaline rush and that's going to keep you working through discomfort. Yeah, absolutely. That's a that's a good point about how it is. It's not just that we want dogs who are going to be focused while they're working, but that arousal level can actually help them get through really tough stuff. Yeah. And if it's too high, then you get a dog who is just not going to be thinking and um, it's actually counterproductive. So you kind of yeah. want like a, a nice middle ground, <laughs> which we can yeah. definitely delve into a little bit more. Yeah, absolutely. So 
I think the the of the three terms that we I, I laid out at the beginning, I think the one that confuses me personally the most is when someone says that a dog is in drive. Um, and I think we're probably going to end up talking about that arousal curve that you just mentioned when we're talking about this. But it's one of those terms that just it bothers me because of the visual of like you're putting a, I, I drive manual <laughs> and I just imagine like I'm putting my dog in drive um, like it's that easy. And I don't know if that visual is actually uh, helpful for people or not. No, I think it really first of all like what what is in drive like I totally agree with you this is definitely a label that has really really muddy meanings like what is it does anybody actually know what it means that could describe it really accurately without using the label I think it's very tricky and I think it might be best described to like maybe that concept of the like the arousal bell curve I think maybe we can explore that a little bit more um, but yeah, I agree with you because it's like, oh, I can just, you know, slot him into pack drive or slot him, slot him into prey drive, just shift gears, right? It's very, yeah. it is a very strange concept. Um, how have you kind of mostly heard it used? Um, I think so. I've been starting to dive into dog sports a little bit, um, primarily since we left for our trip, um, because Fenzie Dog Sports is kind of the way that I can keep taking classes. Um, and I've also got a border collie and I'm excited to uh, keep trying to use him for as much of what he's bred for as possible, um, given that I don't have sheep. Um, and uh, yeah, I think I most often see it on forums related to dog sports as saying, you know, before I want to do my agility run, I want to make sure that my dog is in drive. Or when I'm talking to clients who have a issues with a dog who chases squirrels or chases cattle or whatever. And they say, well, he just gets into prey drive and then we can't snap him out of it. Um, and I don't think those are two. I don't think those things are necessarily the same thing, because I think the people who are the agility handlers are trying to talk about getting their dog to that optimal level on the arousal curve, which we should probably stop. And let's talk about that arousal curve for a second. Um, the way I understand it is we're talking about arousal as like a bell curve where at one end on the left hand side, we've got a dog who's asleep. Yep. <laughs> and then one on the other end, on the right hand side, we've probably got a dog who's frantically bunny hopping on the end of a leash, screaming, yeah. his pupils are dilated. He's way, way over. And some dogs might not actually be bunny hopping and yodeling when they're there, but that's a visual that kind of gets there. And when we're talking about working a dog or training a dog, we there's some level in between there that we want the dog to be at. And I think that's what people are saying when they want their dog to be in drive before they run agility. I think so. And like for me with agility, I mean, they might just also be talking about focus and connection as well, right? Yeah. Like making sure that the dog is actually like paying attention to you. And like maybe in that context, they just mean that my dog is ready to work. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And I mean, that's, I've actually never, ever, ever thought, oh, I'm going to make sure my dog is in drive before agility. So that's really interesting because I've always yeah. just like, oh, let's yeah. just make sure that, you know, he's ready and he's connected. And all I'm looking for when I start like an agility run is that the dog is, you know, he's actually a little bit more on the relaxed side, you know, holding his start line stay and then seems focused on the task. So maybe that's also, right. it, you know, focused. And I don't know, I've actually, I haven't heard yeah. a lot of agility people use that, but if you're seeing it on forums, it's obviously. Yeah. Well, and term. I think you're making a good point that I think people's level, uh, people's 
definition of in drive for them is probably different because some people might actually be more okay with a dog whose pupils are dilated and his teeth are chittering and he because their dog is able to work through that level of arousal but other people whose dogs absolutely can't work when their teeth are chittering um that would not be classified as in drive for them. I mean, and and it's like any of these things that we talk about that are labels. We can't cut the dog open and point to a, a place where it's like, oh, when all the blood flows here, that means the dog is in drive. Um, especially because people can't even agree on what they're talking about when they say in drive. Yeah, I think that um, kind of that sort of level of focus, ready to do the task, might be sort of what people are talking about. And when you mm-hmm. talk about working, I'm just thinking of like bite sports, which isn't mm. my mm-hmm. forte. So I apologize if I don't get this 100% correct, but I, I have definitely heard about people talking about like working dogs in drive in bite sports. And I think when they're talking about that, it is actually specifically referencing to like working the dog in obedience when they're in kind of a higher arousal state. Yeah. Versus yeah, calmer. Like you can work on, you can work on, you know, your positions and your heel work, all of that with the dog calmer, but then you also want to work, you know, around the distraction, like the decoys, which, it, you know, will spike the arousal level in the dog. Mm-hmm. And I think that's kind of what people in bite sports are referencing when they're talking about like working the dog in drive. Yeah. Yeah. I, so I don't know how much trying to define these is helping at all, but it's an interesting discussion. Yeah. Well, that's, I think that's part of the problem is that like right. people do use these terms in different ways. And I think that you really hit the nail on the head when you said like it's different for different sports, different individuals. And like I'm thinking about like I do herding and people don't really that I've noticed talk about a dog like being in herding drive, but they mm-hmm. have it. Yeah. (laughs) You know, which is like, do they want to do the job? Yeah. Yeah. And I know I had an interesting experience with my herding instructor. I went a couple of times with Barley and um, at the end of maybe our third or fourth fourth lesson, she kind of just looked at me and she was like, you know, he just doesn't have it. He's I don't know if it's worth it for you to keep coming back. Um, Which on some level, I think if I was trying to go to stock dog nationals is probably true. But then having done quite a bit more reading about some other options, it's like, well, I could probably still teach him a lot of the basics for herding. And he might start learning to associate those basics with sheep later on. Um, And it might have just been a bad instructor fit. But it's I think that's one of the downsides of saying that a dog has like an innate level of drive and a different thing. Is it really leads instructors and owners to be like, oh, well, my Border Collie doesn't have herding drive, so I'm never going to do this with him, which on some level, as I said, I don't have sheep is kind of fine for me. Um, But he still, I mean, he still loved like when he realized that that's where we were going, even though he honestly spent most of our herding lessons chasing me with a stick um, near the sheep. Um, You know, he still loved it. Like he would, you know, freak out about basically on our way there it was the most excited i've ever seen him um just even though he wasn't really doing it very well must have been enriching for him (laughs) yeah yeah and so i don't know how that all plays into it but um so let's i was gonna add something actually if you don't mind um yeah please do because this was something that i had thought about so maybe it can come up now because you touched on it like the concept of um when someone says uses drive as a label, like, oh, my dog has it or doesn't have it, 
and it's not something that can be, you know, developed or woken up. I just kind of wanted to say, like, that's kind of a problem with labels in general, right? Like, oh, yeah. my dog is reactive. It's not a behavior, right? It's not a behavior that can be changed or modified. It just is what my dog is, right? So it's, I think it's a perception problem. And I think when we use drive as a label, it can be a problem like that too. Because you never know if you, if you kept going with Barley, he might eventually realize that like, oh, oh, I can do this with the sheep. And we call that... Um, turned on yeah. <laughs> and hurting so that we literally say that, yeah, well, they got their drive turned on. We're like, they figure yeah. out, they figure it out. They figure out that they have the, the power to move the stock. And then they just kind of go, Whoa, I really like this. Yeah. Um, but you maybe have done a lot of engagement work with him. And sometimes it might take longer for that to sort of wake up because he's so used to following direction from you, which isn't a bad thing. But uh, yeah, I think I think that's uh, it's a totally pretty, different game where you're like, hey, go and, and work on your own and don't take direction from me. Like actually very similar to, to Noah's work. Um, yeah. Yeah. And it's funny because that was actually a very similar feedback that, that I got when I was first starting out in scent work is your dog follows you around and looks to you too much. Um, such a problem to have. Hey? Such, a, such a yeah, I know. I it's horrible. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I think that's a, a really good thing to pull out and highlight a little bit more. Um and on a total side note, I find it really interesting that we tend to say like, oh, our dog, I have a drivey dog or I have an aggressive dog or I have a fearful dog, but um, or I have an anxious dog. But I the only behavior problem I can think of that I don't think gets that shtick is separation anxiety. Oh, yeah. Like, you you always describe separation anxiety as my dog has it um, versus like. I have a separation anxiety dog like it, maybe and maybe that's just semantics because it's really hard to turn separation anxiety into a adjective. Um, but yeah, just to go down on labels, labels side road for a minute there. It's a good side road. <laughs> it's a great side road. Um, so and then I think the last thing I kind of wanted to to pick out a little bit um, before we move on to our next section is that that third option of so we talk about dogs that are high drive as a label and then we talked about being in drive as if it's a place that a dog can go and then when people start saying like there's play drive versus food drive versus prey drive um versus pack drive which is something you just said that i don't even know if i've ever heard of there's so many like literally <laughs> like what does it mean <laughs> i made a list and it's crazy like i have heard like yeah, food, play, prey, ball drive, tug drive, social drive, pack drive, defense drive, more, you know, and like people wow. use uh, pack drive. I think I've heard that kind of in reference to like being in a pack of dogs and like working okay. as a social unit with dogs. Um, okay. Well, is that like, like a hunting hound sort of thing or – I, I don't know I anything don't know. about like, like running honestly, fox hounds. Honestly, <laughs> like, I've heard it more from like, um, you know, that certain style of trainers that is like, I, I want to walk a hundred dogs together and that's really good for them. And they're in pack drive when they're doing this. Huh. Okay. That's where I tend to heard that. Okay. Yeah. Um, more like the dogs are like just together and cohabitating. And then also there's hunt drive. That's another one. Mm hmm. Hunt drive. Yeah. Herding drive. <laughs> Herding drive. Um, so there there really is so many. It feels like there's kind of like, if there is there is something, people will put a drive label on it. Hey, right. Did if we... there's something that your dog could potentially want, you could then turn it into a drive. Which, on some level, I almost 
kind of like if we want to say like if we go back to our original definition and we say drive is a dog's desire to get something or how hard a dog will work to get something. I don't have a problem necessarily then with breaking it out um, versus from tug versus ball versus bite versus eat. Um, I, I don't know. Then do we break down my dog's cheese drive versus his kibble drive? I don't his know. cheese drive is probably higher. Um, <laughs> and then there's squeeze cheese. You know, uh, we can start getting really crazy. So I think on some levels that is helpful. Um, and I think if you're careful to think about it as um, something that could be developed um, and not an innate quality of your dog that is fixed forever. Um, you know, if I recognize and I, this is something I do recognize with my own Border Collie is his. Um, if I give him a choice between a tennis ball and a fistful of freshly cooked chicken, um, he will take the tennis ball. And recognizing that has me set up scenarios where I practice getting him to eat food um, when he's more excited um, so that I can get him to eat food around toys. Um, but I think a lot of people could take that situation and say, oh, he's a really high toy drive dog. So you have to use toys with him and you can't use food. And that's just how he is. And having tried to, I'm a relatively skilled trainer, and there are a lot of things that it is so much easier to do with food first, and then add a toy in later. <laughs> I, shaping with a toy is very not, hard. Yeah, not easy. <laughs> You're not the first um, person with a border collie that I've known that has had to train their dogs to eat. Yeah, yeah, and he's relatively piggy for a border collie. Um, it just comes into. I've noticed this lately. I've been working on some. I, I would like to get um our advanced trick dog title, and so I've been working on a couple new tricks, and. If I do a bunch of training with like our leg weaves um, with a ball, which does a great job of speeding him up and getting a ton of enthusiasm and flashiness from him. And then the next training session, I give the cue and I offer food. He won't take it. Because um, he's like, whoa, 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 whoa. Last time <laughs> there was a ball for this. Um, so that anyway, I, to bring that all back to drive, I think the problem when we're talking about drives is if we say that he's a high ball drive dog and then we treat that like it's a fixed uh, fixed part of him, um, it can just lead you down some, some frustrating mm -hmm. training routes. Yeah. And I think that like talking about drive as a fixed quality is problematic because you can always, almost always build a drive a drive to work or anything like that. And you can also, well, sometimes it's very hard to reduce. So yeah. especially if it's something, cause I was just thinking about this, that some of the stuff we talk about is like kind of based off of instinct. Like mm -hmm. if we talk about herding drive, that's something that the dog has like been genetically selected for. And it's very strong. It's very, very hard to reduce that. So yeah. yeah, I think yeah. I mean, you I'm can kind teach of talking as I'm behaviors. Yeah, you can teach alternate behaviors, so you can kind of put some control around it. But it's really or you can punish the dog so strongly that he suppress, doesn't want to do it right? anymore. Um, and that's you like it, you'll but... hear the term capping drive a lot in oh, bite uh -huh. sports, um, particularly not to you know be negative towards anybody who works in bite sports because I'm I'm fully in support of it. Uh, yeah. But there is definitely a style of training where they, they certain trainers will really build the dogs up into like a really high frantic arousal level and not work a lot of engagement with them. And then they use definitely punishment to quote unquote cap the drive. 
Sure. Whereas yeah. you can alternatively, and this I would say probably is not as common, but becoming more common, you know, build a lot of engagement, do a lot of positive reinforcement work. Your corrections are more negative punishment where you remove the opportunity to go, you know, to get the, the decoy, to get the bite. Um, and that can create a much more clear-headed dog that doesn't need the punishments to cap yeah. the drive. Um, but you never build up that frantic, frantic level. It's very interesting. Yeah, yeah. No, that, that is interesting. I'm trying to think of – and I think and I think part of the thing with drive um, is we can't really ask the dog who is not performing the behavior yeah. whether or not he still wants to work to do it and he's just scared to. Or whether he's like, well, I know because of pre-MAC principle, because my trainers have taught me that if I sit instead, that's how I get this thing, which then we haven't changed the drives at all. We haven't changed the dog's desires to to get the thing really at all. So, but if we think about people um, like, I don't know, I'm trying to think of like what a high I have like relatively high food drive, I would say. <laughs> I have high food um, drive. Yeah. <laughs> Can I tell you, I yeah, cookies it's for breakfast? really weird. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I spend a shocking amount of money on going out to eat for food. Um, it is a problem. And yeah, I don't know. I think I would potentially need therapy if pe- if something was done to me to reduce my food drive. You know, like the things that you would be able to do to me that I can think about that would get me to be much less interested in food probably would not be very nice. Um, Yeah. And I don't know what alternative behavior you could offer me that I would take instead of food. Just and I'm talking about humans here because I think it's because because this is an intrinsic thing, like an internal thing. And I can I can get inside my own head and think about it. I can't do the same thing with my dog. Yeah. And I think that like. Food is very obviously like a primary reinforcer, like you just need it. And I think that like a lot of the things, I'm going to make this argument here that a lot of the things that we're going to talk about dogs having high drive for are also probably for that particular dog, a primary reinforcer. And that's going to vary per dog, but I think that it's not stuff that you would have to condition or build, right? Because like my when I think about taking my dogs hurting, I've never had to build their herding drive. I've only had to put control on it. So they definitely have the desire to do the work and they will work hard through a lot of, you know, uncomfortable stuff to do it. Not uncomfortable put on by me, but then I have to work really hard on their getting, you know, their obedience in place when they're in exciting situations and making sure they understand the cues I want to give them off of sheep um, to make sure that they can listen. But I've never had to be like, you know, if you have a dog who, like you said, with, with Bart, with Barley, um, that is your boy's name, right? I'm not calling him. Yeah. yeah, Okay. Like you had to, you've almost had to like teach him to eat when he's excited. I've had dogs, I've had to like build play. Yeah. Right. Or like even different aspects of play. But some of these dogs that I think we could argue are really high drive in certain areas. You don't have to build that. Yeah. I would say it's pretty innate. You more have to shape like, it or control it. Yeah, pretty uh, pretty highly naturally reinforcing to them. Yeah, I would agree. And I know, uh, I think it's, um, 
Hannah Brannigan had a great she's had two really good episodes that I think are related to this that we will link to in the show notes. Um, one talking about teaching a foodie dog to tug and one talking about teaching her new her new pup figment um, to eat. He's also a border collie who, from what I've heard from her podcast, having not met her or her dog, um, he sounds much pickier than Barley because um, Barley in general, if there's no toy around, he's very good about food. Um but, um, yeah, Hannah has some great stuff about, you know, teaching how to teach a dog to enjoy something. And one of the things like that she talks about with Tug is she basically just let the dog win Tug over and over and over and kept ending the game before he even really wanted it to be over. And like, I don't know, like, is it possible to teach a dog to enjoy something and then it becomes a primary reinforcer and then we can say that dog has some amount of drive in that area but if you're conditioning it yeah it's a secondary right Right. not to say that i i mean like we know that a a secondary or a conditioned reinforcer can actually get to a point where it doesn't need to be followed by a primary so then i don't know enough about this (laughs) area to say do then do we then call it a primary Um, but like, I was going to say too, like, even with, um, if I think about my dogs, like different dogs enjoy different parts of play too. And like Brew really likes the tugging part. And like, he enjoys that kind of fight and the conflict with that. If I let him win, he will bring it right back to me. And he's like, no, no more, more. Whereas Dexter, I definitely had, um, had to build up his enjoyment of actually doing the tug part. By letting him win and have the toy, and his favorite part is just to prance around in circles with it. <laughs> and then I'd have him bring it back, and we'd tug a little bit, and I'd let him have it, and he'd do his little victory lap. But that's that's the part that he likes, you know? Yeah. Or, like, I'll throw it and chase him to it, and he likes that aspect a little bit more. But it, um, by kind of working on that, like, similar to what you were mentioning with Hannah, like, letting the dog win, it mm-hmm. built his, uh, his desire and his ability to tolerate more tug. Yeah. 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 That makes sense. Um, I almost, so one of the things I'm wondering about a little bit here is, um, in my high school psychology class, we talked about, um, kind of nature versus nurture sort of stuff as the, um, as the idea of think of a water glass and your nature is the amount of water that's in the glass when you're born. And then your nurture could pour stuff in. So if we're talking about your predisposition towards anxiety or something, you could be born because of genetics and epigenetics with a really high level. And then just like basically nothing happens and you've got anxiety or you could be born relatively resilient. But then you go and do four tours in Afghanistan and you end up with anxiety anyway. Um And I wonder if we could use a similar thing for drive, potentially, where, you know, you can say most border collies are probably born with three quarters of the way full on that tug drive. And, um, you know, many basset hounds are much higher up on the sniffing Sniffing drive, drive. if if that's a drive, (laughs) and a lot lower on that running drive. Um, Why not? And (laughs) we're going to have drive for everything. We might as well have drive for everything, right? Yeah, yeah, I guess. I I mean, I feel like there's probably some pulling sport husky group out there that talks about running drive hmm. or pulling drive, maybe. I'm trying to think. I've also done dog sledding. I'm, try, I'm trying oh, to remember. Yeah, yeah, you have. Yeah. Yeah, and I've done a little bit of cane across, but... Um, yeah, I don't. I, maybe, yeah, maybe, maybe they, maybe they're immune. I, um, I'm sure the term drive comes up. I just can't recall if I've heard of like specifically pulling. 
But then I think also with sled dogs, that's really the only thing they want to do. <laughs> so it's not like some dogs where they might want toy versus food. Um, yeah. People might talk about food drive with sled dogs too because some can be picky eaters. Yeah. In sort yeah. of a different yeah, way where like, oh, he has low food drive, so I have to like do this to make him eat when we're running. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. I think if we but look anyway, at different yeah. sports, it's going to be, there's going to be different ones in every sports. Yeah, definitely. Oh, and I guess, so the reason I, I guess, wanted to bring up the water glass analogy is if we're, we're talking about simultaneously, we're saying it's a label and we don't want to use that and then say that like, oh, it's fixed. But then we're also acknowledging that dogs do kind of come predisposed with these different levels of it. Um, and as I think, you know, I'm about to start a job with working dogs for conservation and they really, you know, they look for dogs with these very, these natural innate levels of just kind of crazy amount of toy and play drive. Um, and when I've gone out with these dogs um, and shadowed them, they're expected to hike for six or eight hours over really intense terrain in the jungle and maybe get the ball thrown for them like five times um, whenever they find something. So obviously those dogs need to be willing to do some pretty crazy amounts of work in exchange for what their um, for their ball. Um, so obviously, if you're looking for a working dog or a sporting dog or a dog with some purpose, you are going to be a lot better served if you look for these dogs that have these natural levels. But yeah, that doesn't mean that when you've if you've already got a dog in your house and you already, you know, as I've said with Barley, he's not always super interested in food. That doesn't mean I have to be like, well, I guess I just have to learn to shape using a tennis ball now. Um, no, I'm just going to figure out how to convince him to eat food. Um and how to set up a training scenario so that food can be the most reinforcing to, thing to him in that scenario. Yes. Do you, does that make sense? Yeah, and I think that we're kind of coming to perhaps a conclusion that drive, um, I think we're kind of figuring out it's definitely related to reinforcement prevention, uh, preferences, holy cow, that was hard to say, um, and kind of like innate versus developed. And I think one of the other things too that's sticking out to me is I think we're kind of deciding that like it's you can build it but you it's really hard to make it go away if it's there yeah 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 I, I'm, I'm gonna be interested to see if anyone writes into us about Be're any like, ways you're to reduce so it wrong. <laughs> yeah I I can't think of anything that I yeah I really can only think of like ways that I would control it mm -hmm. um, or provide or outlets or provide outlets. Right? So, yeah. like, when I, I think of a dog, like a herdy dog, that doesn't go work on stock, um, generally you need to sort of provide games that can provide an outlet for some of those desires, or you're, it will mm -hmm. leak out in places we don't want it to. Like chasing yeah. kids in Central Park. No, that doesn't happen. Yes, it does. My <laughs> dog did it. Yeah. Well, yeah. Um. Yeah, it's uh, I think that's a that's a good point. So let's talk about right before we um, I think we're almost done here, but let's talk about just a couple other of those phrases that we hear when people talk about drive um, and kind of loop back to talk about those, given what I think we've kind of come to like, I, I don't have a one sentence version of what we've said so far about drive, but I think what we've said so far, I kind of like about these preferences for reinforcers and these desires to work for reinforcers that can be increased but are really difficult to decrease and so i'm just going to add this in too is i think that like mm -hmm. maybe why drive is so popular as a label is if you don't really understand 
like the behavior analysis side, you might not understand how to, like if you don't have a really under, good understanding of what reinforcement is and how it drives behavior, uh, there's that word drive again, um, you might not understand that that's what you're looking at, right? So yeah. it's easier to just say, oh, this is X drive or Y drive, when really if you break it down, it's all the same underlying behavior rule. Yeah, yeah, I think that, that makes sense. And I, and I, I like, I, I'm sure we've all kind of used it, um, even if we do understand some of the underlying behavior, behavior analysis, because labels, labels stay around because shorthand makes talking easier. Well, how much easier, easier is it just to, to say, like, that I have a high drive dog versus I have a dog who gets aroused fast and easy and works really, really hard to get what he wants? Yeah, You exactly. know, or my dog yeah, I don't has say that. high play drive. Versus, you know, my dog really likes to play tug and he will work really, really hard and it's a great reward for training, blah, blah, blah. Right? So labels have a purpose. They're only a problem when you you think it is something that the dog is and it can't be changed or you don't understand what you're describing when you use the label. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Yeah, I mean, I think, like, I'm looking forward to getting a puppy in the next, like, two to five years, um, which is it's a like, big range. I'm just like, I'm so excited. Uh, it's not anytime soon, but you know, one of the things I'm going to be talking to the breeder about is the idea that I do want a dog who is going to be high drive. And then when I say that, I'm going to say, when I mean that, when I say that, I mean, this is what I'm looking for in the puppy. And like, I mean, there are other things that are on that list. Like I would really like a puppy who's optimistic. And when I, when I say that, what I mean is a puppy that looks at something new and says, Oh boy, let me go check it out. Not, Oh no, I'm going to hide behind mom. Yeah. So like a, a good response to novelty, very curious, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, but it's so much easier when you're first on the phone with a breeder or when you're first sitting down with a client or whatever to use those first labels and then you can always circle back and define them. So um, one of the things that I think is really important to talk about with drive um, is that kind of myth that when people see a frantic or an energetic dog, and I see this a lot in shelters, they say, oh, that dog is high drive. You know, the dog is scaling the walls and screaming at the top of his lungs and he nail rakes everyone who comes into his kennel. Is that dog high drive? (laughs) Not necessarily. He might be. He might be. He might be. He also just could be terrified and highly anxious. Um, Or just, again, we kind of touched on this before, highly aroused dog doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to work very hard for something. And yeah. maybe if and you I, maybe if you get that arousal level down into an optimal zone too, like we talked about, maybe the dog is a good, good working potential. Yeah, yeah, and I know, um, like when I was at the shelter, um, one of I think the toughest cases we saw were the dogs that were kind of on this frantic, energetic level, um, you know, really high, um, far to the right on that arousal curve that we were talking about, but they were not interested in working for anything. Um, and those were some of the toughest dogs for us to work with at the shelter because it's really hard to modulate those arousal levels at the shelter. And they were also really tough to place because people would look at those dogs and they'd say, oh, my God, that dog needs to be a police dog. And you're like, well, <laughs> but he doesn't eat and he doesn't like toys because he's so aroused. He's just totally in that. Oh, I'm going to get my neuroscience wrong. Limbic system. <laughs> he's not he's not in the dog version of the prefrontal cortex at all. <laughs> 
And then one of the other myths that I think we should touch on a little bit is that you can't train high drive dogs without using aversives. And so, I mean, I kind of touched on that before where like, I think it's very common to really build the, the quote unquote drive in a lot of these high drive dogs and then cap it. But Mm -hmm. I think it actually, I think it really is a myth that you have to use you know, physical punishments and corrections on these dogs. And I say that because I know people personally who are very, very skilled trainers that work with these dogs that actually don't use physical corrections. Um, and one of them is my friend, Emily. Um, her name's Emily Hilgenberg and she's in New Jersey now. I've known her for like, I don't know, six years or something. And she, uh, actually has, a Malinois that she competes in um, PSA, Protection Sports Agency, which is a bite work um, organization with. She's done extremely well with this dog. This dog was rescued at like eight months old from a shelter. So she didn't even have her from a puppy. She didn't have a good upbringing. Um, And when she first started training her, she trained her more traditionally. And then when she started to compete with her, what she found is when the aversives were not on the field, she had problems with the dog, you know, releasing the sleeve and letting go of the decoy on, on command and things like that. Um, and so she actually went to a lady named Lori, Wal- Lori Waters, who has trained under Bob Bailey, and she's amazing. Um, you, not a lot of people know about her, but she's a, a very, very talented positive reinforcement trainer. She's in the Chicago area. She has multiple arches on her obedience wow. dogs, which is like, that's a big deal. Um, and so Lori actually kind of helped her retrain her dog through using all reinforcement and negative punishment. So what a lot of people tend to do is they tend to accept a lot of mediocre or like moderately okay responses and then add corrections. And then what they did, which is like sort of, I mean, you and I are going to understand this when you want to train something and you want to work more within the realms of positive reinforcement, things had to be broken down a lot more, smaller steps, finer slices, and then also like criteria was key. So if the dog didn't complete the heel pattern the way that she wanted her to, she would stop, start her over. She had to do the whole thing perfect, had to do the chain perfect to get the reinforcement instead of going, oh, okay, well, you know, I'll let you do it anyways, or I'll reset you, I'll re-cue you to get, you know, to get into your heel position better. If the dog didn't do it right the whole way, it was terminate, restart. Yeah. So very, very different way of thinking. Um, And Mm -hmm. it's really, really difficult to do as trainers because we want to lump. And the amount of like splitting and fine slicing you have to do is, you know, pretty incredible. And then, but she has retrained this dog and I just have to, um, reference this because she has done extremely well in competition with the new training methods. She, um, for her PSA level one, she went and competed in the Midwest regionals and won like every award in her category. Wow. She cleaned up. So it was pretty amazing. The change, like she was having trouble getting this dog to get the title and she went back and retrained her and then just like sweeped. Really, really, wow. really cool. So Yeah, we're going to have to link to <laughs> both of them if yes. they've got websites or any of that, social media, whatever. Um, so I will yeah, ask you for that. But isn't that off. amazing? Like the power of that yeah, training. Yeah, that's incredible. And it's just smart, clean yeah. training, you know? Yeah. Um, so I think the whole idea of like you do need to, to train these dogs with aversives is, is not correct. 
Yeah. I think that if you really are committed to good, clean training, you can do it without, at least without physical reverses, because there had to right. be some negative punishment, right? Oops, that was yeah. wrong. We're starting the chain over again, which I think is appropriate, especially in behavior chains. Um, yeah. Oops, sorry, we're going to start that over. So that had there had to be some consequence. Yeah. But she's yeah. not used any physical corrections on this dog. Yeah. I have a hard time imagining going through life without negative punishment in any way, shape or form, which I'm sure I might get a little bit of icky comments on social media for that. But honestly, just like, I can't, I can't imagine not being able to be like, okay, we're going to remove you from the situation now. And like, sometimes it's not necessarily intended as a learning experience, but it still is going to be like, sometimes it's just like, I personally am emotionally fed up and I need to leave, but that's still going to be a negative punishment for my dog. (laughs) Even if that's not my intention. Well, also, we're talking about dogs that have like incredibly high desires to do the thing. The most meaningful consequence that you can provide is saying you don't get to do the thing. And the problem is if you have a dog who's high drive, and I'm using my air quotes again, you can punish them as much as you want, and they're still going to find a way to access that reinforcement. Yeah. It's not effective. It's not. And then they learn really quickly when the punishments off the table like people go through all Mm -hmm. kinds of crazy hoops to try and make their dog make sure their dog's not you know punishment smart for competition they wear multiple collars so that the dog you know doesn't just associate that the e-collar is that why they do that yeah so they'll have multiple collars yeah so that you know the dog understands okay the chain collar goes on and then this one goes on so that they don't necessarily make the association with the e-collar um it's very interesting I've definitely seen photos passed around of dogs that were in the midst of that sort of training and just been like, oh, my God, what are they doing? Um, That actually makes a lot of sense. Um, I'm not saying I condone it, but that makes a lot more sense than whatever I was thinking. I mean, like, I'm going to put this out here. And again, I might get some icky Mm -hmm. comments on social media. I've got friends who train and, you know, they do things their way and they're very respectful to the dogs. and They don't hurt dogs um, and they definitely don't abuse them. And just because they use tools that I don't like doesn't mean they're not good trainers. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think that's super important. But yeah, you can um, you can definitely accomplish a lot without using corrections. Physical yeah. Corrections. Well, and I think one of the so I'm actually recording a, a podcast tomorrow um, with a good friend and we're going to be talking about crossover training and how your whole training methodology has to shift. Like yes. you're not just removing the aversives. And I think that's kind of what you were starting to sort of getting at is it's not just Okay, if your if your whole training plan revolves around the fact that you are using both positive reinforcement and positive punishment, then you're going to need a positive punishment because that's what the training plan says and that's what you have set up. Um, and yeah, if you're planning on, okay, we're going to get the response and then we're just going to start punishing inadequate responses and that is your plan from day one, then that's what you're going to kind of need to do. But if you retrain and you say, okay, we're only going to reward for acceptable responses and we're going to if the dog is not giving acceptable responses we're going to take criteria down a half step um you have to totally shift how you're setting up your training in order to be successful if you want to avoid aversives yeah and i think reducing the criteria and splitting things down is really really challenging i think Mm -hmm. even for really um you know good trainers it's probably the hardest skill yeah yeah i would agree um and especially if you're someone like me who is terrible at record keeping. Um, me too. Yeah, yeah. I, I've i tried so many times. And it's funny because I'll even put my dog's um, training 
calendar next to my running training calendar because I'm like, okay, when I fill out my running log every day, I will also fill out my dog's training log every day. And you know what happened? My response for both dropped. <laughs> That's funny. Uh, yeah. So I don't know. I need a human uh, behavior analyst you have to, to maybe help me like, out with. Get yourself like a, make it like an advent calendar where Ooh. you get a little candy every time you fill it out. I should buy all the leftover advent calendars. We've talked about you and I are both highly food motivated. I just like, I'm like, oh, I'll just, you know, sit down and have a glass of wine while I do this extra work that I have to do. That's yeah. like, <laughs> I do that. I'm like, I'll yeah. just have this candy. Because I'm working Well, and I think hard. actually I was, <laughs> to be fair to myself, I was better about record keeping when I had a physical um, book for it. And since we've been living out of our car for the last year, I have not had, and I've had it as a Google spreadsheet. Um, anyway, we're, we're way down the tangent. Um, of record keeping. But so let's come back right before we end and let's talk about a little just kind of recap a little bit um, and then we'll we'll wrap it up. So I think all of this comes down to just being good behavior analysts, um, good students of behavior analysis and focusing on what we can observe, which, as we said several times with this drive thing, is we can't point to where drive is in the dog, but we can say this dog is willing to leap over a flaming rubble pile in order to get the ball. That means something. Which actually probably is a test that some of those people for detection dogs would do. <laughs> yeah, I know there is a rubble pile test. Yes, there I is. I don't know if there's fire involved. Yeah, um, actually, <laughs> but... my friend Emily, who I was talking about, I had a, a client in New York um, that got a Malinois puppy that bless them, but they never should have gotten a Malinois puppy. And of course he had problems at a very young age. Um, mm -hmm. like he wouldn't even go outside without screaming. So I was doing oh, no. some work with them and I got them to be able to like get him outside, but it just was getting worse and worse and worse and finally convinced them that they should rehome him. Um, mm -hmm. and so Emily actually ended up fostering him and, uh, he actually went into a detection dog training company. Oh, good. Yeah. And yeah. that's what, that's what, um, that was the test. Here, throw a toy on the rubble pile, and will he work for it? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Like, he never yeah. was, he was not destined to be a pet. Definitely not in New York City. <laughs> yeah. But he's oh, happy now. God. He's happy and fulfilled, and, oh, good. you know, yeah. she definitely saved his life, so that was great. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and I think that kind of circles back to one of the things that we did talk about quite a bit on this, is that it's really, really hard to reduce that drive. Yeah. Um, yeah, and that was definitely leaking out in in very <laughs> inappropriate ways. I just said inappropriate, yeah. inappropriate, inappropriate, inappropriate. Let's try that again. <laughs> yeah, like if that dog had lived with a professional trainer who did not do detection sports, could that dog have potentially succeeded? I think so. Maybe depending, yeah. you know, depending on your your success. <laughs> what is success for that dog? Um, but. It's so much easier to just be like, you know what? Let's go give you a job. I mean, he wasn't even crate trained, so yeah, that was tough. really challenging. Yeah, yeah, and especially when you get these dogs into homes like that, where mm -hmm. it's just, you know, they're not, they're not even like avid pet dog trainers or something. Because um, yeah, I feel like sometimes even sport dog people get over in over their heads with what um, what they say they want, and uh -huh. that's one of the things I'm trying to be careful of when I'm looking for my next dog. Is Brew like was a lot of dog for me. Yeah, and we butted yeah. heads for um, a long time. Um, now we're now we're good. He's five. <laughs> <laughs> He's five. He's five. Yeah. So oh, so he and Barley are about the same age. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's one of the things I'm really cognizant of is on like on one hand, I do. I think I want like a Ferrari of a dog. But do I want a custom Lamborghini? No. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So is there any any final thoughts? Um, this has been quite a wandering conversation. Yeah. Well, that's it's been okay. a lot of fun. That's, I yeah. like that. Um, as you know, that's what my podcast is all about. So I'm just influencing you. Um, I think for me, I think we covered most of it. I don't know if you want to do like a little bit of a recap again. Um, I like the highlight of it's really important to look at observable behavior. Um, and I think that sometimes a lot of this tri- talk about drive is trying to sort of assign a label onto the emotion or the mind state of the dog, like pack drive, defense drive, right? Um, But looking at, you know, reminding ourselves to look at the observable behavior, um, I think it's really important. I think that we sort of discovered some things that we can agree agree on about this concept of drive related to reinforcement, um, primary or innate generally, and how strong the dog's desire to work for it is. And do we think it has something to do with arousal? I think so. Yeah. Yeah, I think, I think we, we do. Um, you can yeah. build it. I but have it's... a hard time imagining yeah. using the word drive about a dog who is sleepy. Yeah. And you can build it, but it's really hard to make it go away if it's there. Yeah. Yeah. If it's an I eight. think that's a, I think that's a pretty good summary. I think there is some level of, yeah, it's, dogs are born with some amount of it, and it's probably easier to build when they're young. I don't think we mentioned that, but I would imagine it's um, easier to teach five-week-old puppies what's awesome in the world than it is to teach five-year-old dogs what's awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, again, but if they're born with it, if it's innate, that's not going to be a problem. What else did we talk about? Um, people use it as a label incorrectly a lot, I think, and very different meanings so just being careful understanding what you're saying when you use the term what do you mean by that yeah do we mean do we mean their desire to get at a specific reinforcer do we mean in general they are desirous of getting reinforcers or do we mean that they're at what the the handler considers to be an optimal level of arousal for work because i think those are kind of three different things um that people use drive for and who knows? Maybe there's more that we didn't even talk about. Yeah, I mean, like, I've definitely even heard of, like, I think I've brought this up before, but drive being used as, like, a shorthand for the dog's mindset, like, almost what they're focused on, like, pack drive mm. or social drive. Like, when I hear that, it's generally in reference to, like, the dog is focused on being around other dogs, or the dog is focused on his person, which is yeah. social drive. I don't know. There's many. There's so many. Yeah. Yeah, I think that one, I think that one kind of makes the least sense to me. Yeah, and Um, I generally see that, to be honest, with trainers who maybe aren't really understanding of behavior science. Sure. So it's like you're trying to ascribe a label to something that is happening. And generally, I think what the trainer wants to see sometimes. Sure. Yeah. Not necessarily what's happening. Would you, dare we say, kind of like calm, submissive behavior from dogs that are actually just scared to behave? Yeah. Well, on that note, I think I think that was a great recap. Can you um, remind us where everyone can find you? Um, yeah. And be sure to plug any if you've got anything that you want people to purchase from you. Oh. Be sure to mention that, too. So <laughs> um, I if you want to you know, refer anybody who's in the New York City area, I do take um, do take new clients and I work through instinct, dog behavior and training. Um, I also do teach workshops. If anybody is interested, um, please contact me 
through my website or my Instagram, which again is nycdogtrainer.us and the Instagram's nycdogtrainer. Um, I teach workshops on really any kind of behavior problem that you're interested in. I do um, like an urban dog behavior workshop and I do a strictly a leash reactivity workshop. Uh, so I'm definitely interested on getting some of those in the books. If anybody has a space and you're interested on, you know, working with me to plan something, definitely uh, hook me up. I do have also that should be coming out uh, by the time this is released, uh, a webinar for the IAABC that is on separation anxiety. Um, so if you're a member, I believe that will be no cost to IABC members. Um, and if you're not an IABC member, well, you should be. <laughs> it's Definitely. very affordable and you get a lot of free or inexpensive education for that. You don't have to certify, um, but check out also the IABC at IAABC.org. I think that's it. Great. Okay, cool. And I am Kayla Fratt and I own Journey Dog Training. I am super excited because I just put together a little video um, loose leash walking course that you guys can find at journeydogtraining.com. And it is like 40-ish minutes of video. I think it's six or seven different lessons um, with a bunch of different drills for you guys if you're struggling with a dog that pulls on leash. Um, I've also got a couple different books and courses available on online if you guys want to check those out. Um, and before we go, make sure that you guys subscribe to Canine Conversations wherever you find your podcasts. Um, you can find your episode notes and bonus materials at canineconvos.com, which is where you'll find links to all of the great trainers and other podcasts that we mentioned. You can always contact us at hello at canineconvos.com. And that is canine, which is all spelled out. And finally, our theme music is called Funny Song. It's provided royalty free from bensound.com. Our audio is mixed and edited by James Eady at beheard.org.uk. And our logo is from Walker Hooper. And you can find his work on Instagram at walkers underscore username. Thanks for listening.